I've always loved hospital TV shows. Grey's Anatomy, House, Scrubs, Chicago Hope, Doogie Howser MD, St. Elsewhere. I've watched a lot of them. But one of the best of all time, in my book at least, has to be ER. When it premiered in 1994, I was a high school kid, with no idea that by the time that show went off the air 15 years later, I would have started a career that put me in the middle of the action I had seen so many times on the show. As I watched the final season of ER, it seemed to me there was an important member of the trauma team missing, someone like me. I'm Stacy Sargent Lawton, and I'm a hospital chaplain. Each week on this podcast, some of my fellow chaplains and I will break down one or two episodes of ER from our unique perspectives as spiritual caregivers who've worked in hospitals. On today's show, we'll be talking about the extra-long pilot episode titled 24 Hours. We'll introduce all the characters we meet at County General ER in Chicago and introduce ourselves as your hosts. This is ER Chaplains Watching ER. Hi, and welcome to the very first episode of ER Chaplains Watching ER. I'm Stacy Sergeant Lawton, one of your hosts, and we are just here to talk about the series ER from the perspective of our real-life experience as chaplains in various ERs and a few of us in other settings, too. So for myself, um, I've been a hospital chaplain for a little over 10 years. I've been in three different um, level one trauma center hospitals in North and South Carolina. I'm currently, and for most of that 10 years, have been at uh, Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. Um, I live in Somerville, South Carolina with my husband and two little boys and two medium-sized dogs. Um, Also have a band with my husband, Rogue Two, and we're going to provide the music for the show. Uh, So that's a little about what I do for fun and sort of my chaplaincy experience. Um, I watched ER from the very beginning of the series in 1994 when I was a, I think I was a junior in high school, maybe a senior in high school. Anyway, my mom and I started watching it. She let me stay up late enough on Thursdays to watch it. Um, And so I have good memories of ER all through the last of my high school years, all through college years, when I lived in France after college. Um, By the time the show ended, I was working full-time in a hospital as a chaplain, which I never would have imagined when I started watching the show and had to turn my head at all the bloody parts in the ER. Um, But it doesn't really bother me in real life now, after all these years. So, that's my intro. Um, One of my co-hosts up next, Sarah Jane. Introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Reverend Sarah Jane Moran, and... I live in upstate South Carolina. Um, I began my journey with chaplaincy um, back after seminary in 2005. And I trained at Spartanburg Regional. And then I worked at um, St. Francis in Greenville um, as chaplain um, to both campuses up through the birth of my children in 2010, a boy, and then a girl in 2013. Um, I love storytelling, storytelling in many different forms. And so I enjoy TV shows. I enjoy books. um, I enjoy the gospel told in many different ways. And so I'm very excited about this opportunity to talk about different means of storytelling and methods and finding meaning in them. And next we have Deborah. Hi, I'm Deborah Reeves. I'm calling in from Georgia, where my husband and I live with our two children now. Um, I, too, have been a chaplain in hospitals and also with a nonprofit hospice agency. I um, am currently a stay-at-home mom and a secondary caregiver to my father who has a um, memory illness. So I feel as if um, my professional life and my personal life uh, are intertwined, and I often practice being a non-anxious presence 
even as a mom and now a caregiver. I um, watched ER, the pilot episode, for the very first time late last night. (laughs) And um, I am already hooked, I think. I'm ready for uh, the next episode, and I'm excited to journey with my chaplain sisters and also with listeners who probably already are big fans of the show ER. And I'll pass the torch now to Janie. Hi, um, I'm Janie Powell. I'm a staff chaplain at a pediatric hospital um, in Tennessee. And uh, my experience, um, I did a, a, a been technically in pastoral care and hospital setting for about 10 years, um, but I had a couple years off and was PRN for several of those years. I've been in my current space for three years, and um, I love it, and the ER is one of my um, primary care areas, and I've always kind of been an ER person. I love the chaos and the mm-hmm. unpredictability. Um, I, I I like that ER personality um, of the staff. And so um, every hospital I've ever worked in, I just always walk as to the ER as soon as possible. Um, um, I'm thinking about, I have kids and pets and um, enjoy, enjoy them and enjoy my life. Um, I'm really interested in, how I'm interested in um, staff care a lot. It's really important to me to spend a lot of time in my work day with staff, um, supporting them and equipping them and empowering them to be um, spiritual caregivers if they want to. And in my part of the world, I feel like a lot of ours are really excited and enthusiastic about that. Um, and then being a, um, and encourager about their own self care and taking care of their spirits because it's hard. Anytime you work with care, it's really hard. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like we have a special um, challenge on us in a in a children's hospital. So I, I, I am passionate about that. And then um, I, I, that's all I have to say. Okay, thank you, Janie. Thanks, everybody. Um, We also have one other co-host who is not able to be here tonight, so I will let her introduce herself when, hopefully next week, when she can join us, um, Carrie Nettles, and she has done her chaplain training, her clinical pastoral education um, at a level one trauma center in the upstate of South Carolina, and now is working as a chaplain at the Julie Valentine Center, which is a, a child advocacy center for victims of sexual abuse. Um, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, she is the first chaplain in the country in a setting like that in a child advocacy center. And she's really passionate about pastoral care of children. Um, so I'm excited to get her perspective as well from somebody who's been in a hospital but also worked as a chaplain um, outside the hospital. And we'll have really unique things to say, especially when we get into Doug Ross and some of his care of kids, as I'm sure you will too, Janie. Um <laughs> And it may, it probably won't be all five of us every week, um, but at least two or three of us, I'm hoping every single time we'll be able to come together and talk about two episodes of ER normally. Um, tonight we're only going to do one because the pilot, which is called 24 Hours, is a double episode of ER, so it's an hour and a half long on Hulu. It was two hours long when it ran on NBC way back in the day. And we'll start off each of our podcast shows with a recap of the ER episode in one minute. Um, But since this is a double episode, I get two minutes, and I'm going to try to go through it as quickly as I can. I timed myself, and it was like one minute and 40 seconds, so we'll see how I do. So, quick recap, or as Mark Green says when the EMTs come in, give me the bullet, which I've never heard anybody say in a real-life ER, by the way. So, we meet the staff of County General's ER in Chicago, a very busy public hospital. Through seeing 24 hours of life in the ER, we get to know all the characters. Mark Green, chief resident. He's overworked, and it's putting a lot of stress on his marriage. His wife wants him to quit and take a cushy job at a private practice. 
He's a very good doctor and loves his work in the ER. Everyone relies on him. Doug Ross, pediatrician in the ER, who comes in drunk a few hours before his shift begins. Mark takes care of him and covers for him. We later see he is passionate about his work and great with kids. Carol Hathaway, charge nurse in the ER. Very good at her job, clearly overworked and badgered by other staff. Also has lots of sexual tension with Doug Ross. They have some serious history. Peter Benton, very talented and sometimes cocky medical resident. Can be uh, abrasive with other people, but knows what a talented surgeon he is and ends up saving a guy's life in this first episode. John Carter, third-year med student, brand new to the ER, being supervised by Benton. Naive and inexperienced, but obviously very smart and caring. Halle, a no-nonsense, very experienced nurse you do not want to piss off. Susan Lewis, compassionate and talented resident, very close to Dr. Green. And Dr. Morgan Stern, chief of surgery and emergency medicine, seems competent and caring, a good teacher for the residents. Some of the patients we meet in this episode, there's a building collapse downtown that brings in multiple traumas at one time and at least one death that we know of. An eight-year-old kid with a demanding mom and an ulcer. A cop who accidentally shot himself during a fight with his wife. A woman who gives birth in a taxi. A 13-year-old gang member shot in the chest. A 40-year-old man with possible lung cancer diagnosis. A 13-year-old girl with an ectopic pregnancy. A baby Dr. Ross suspects is being abused by the mother. And finally, Nurse Carol Hathaway, who was brought in after she took a bunch of pills in an apparent suicide attempt. Very traumatic for the entire staff. So, that's the breakdown of this episode. So much to work with, pastoral care-wise. Where do you guys want to start? One of the things that struck me, this is Sarah Jane, about this episode was that they wanted to set the tone of all of the contrasts going on in the ER. Um, some of that was used, even though the quality of the filming is pretty terrible by today's standards, <laughs> you can still tell that in the setting, they're trying to show the difference between the um, very harsh hospital light that they're using during um, any kind of surgery or um, or any time they're, they're dealing with a patient as opposed to any of the break rooms where the mm -hmm. light is a lot darker and it's a lot more natural and there's a lot of shadows and when they can actually be themselves. I think that there's contrasts in birth and death, which is why they have the woman giving birth um, in the cab because they want to show that there is hope, there is um, a time when everyone can come together in the ER, as well as all these terrible stories, too, which to the average person might seem too overwhelming for them to be able to, to deal with and process. Um, I also think that another contrast between the, the characters and their patients would be love and hate, um, the way that they feel about each other, the way that they feel about their job, um, the way that they feel about the situations that they are put in. There's lots of jokes made about, oh, we're, you know, we just can't seem to work as a team. You know, love how everyone's so caring. Those are, are jokes made by the doctors um, to, to the interns. But when it comes down to it, they really do come together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, um, at least in my experience, that part is pretty pretty spot on um, as life in a real ER. The staff really does come together, and most of the time, especially the ones who have been there for a while, um, work together as a great team. Um, and as a chaplain, it's exciting to be a part of that team, even in the times when all we do is, is be a non-anxious presence. And I shouldn't discount that by saying all we do, because... I've, there have been times when I've walked into the ER and the charge nurse will see me come around the corner and just say, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Um, it just, it does mean a lot to them to have that person who who sort of brings a calm to really stressful situations, which it's just nonstop crisis in the ER most of the time, and you need that. So, Janie, did you have something to say? I did, I would, and I also thought maybe Deborah had her hand up. Sure. I was just going to follow on uh, what Sarah Jane said. Um, she re she reminded me uh, from this show last night that they all really seem to want to be there. The staff that um, that we saw portrayed in those characters that they wanted to work in the ER, that they knew that they were part of um, 
life-giving work, and um, that seemed to be something that they were each passionate about. I think that's mostly true for the staff that we all work with, I think, in the ER as well. It takes a special person to be able to embrace that chaos and unpredictability that Janie was speaking about, and I think that, of, you know, I just continue to be reminded of how much I admire our coworkers in the ER, chaplains certainly as well. I mean, I've, I've observed many chaplains in the ER setting that I um, was so thankful that they were there and appreciated their um, good work in those moments of crisis. I do think it, it needs to be said that most of our staff really, truly want to be there, and they are called to that kind of work. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter which role they're serving. They all are called to that and embrace it. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I, first of all, I love that idea, and maybe later on we can explore the idea of vocation um, mm-hmm. and, and what that means for, I think we use it, as ministers a lot, but like, it'd be really cool to look at it through the lens of healthcare workers and, um, in, in their different stations. And I love that. Um, I also just wanted to share when you guys were talking, it, it, the, the, I, the teamwork aspect of things just recently, I was, um, in a crisis call and, um, it was a good outcome. So I feel like I need to say that from the, um, from the get go, but I didn't do anything. Um, for a while, I, I, I don't, I mean, I did, maybe we can edit that part. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I did offer a non-anxious presence. I didn't feel like I was doing anything but standing in the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did eventually spend time with the family and, and offer them some care at the bedside. But before that, when, when they were just working so hard, I watched um, these, my friends and these people I care about, um, work together, um, and, and, and communicate and trust each other. And I was moved to tears just a little bit, just overwhelmed with how I felt about how they worked and, and what they did and how well they did their jobs and how, um, they believed in what they did and, and they believed in each other. And I thought, um, what a parallel that is for, for God's kingdom. And, um, and I kind of feel that way when I watch it. And, and i I forgot to say in my intro, I watched ER with my mom, who is a career um, critical care respiratory therapist. And um, when I was a teenager, a young teenager, and then on through college is when I watched it. But I remember responding emotionally to some things when I watched it. And I think it was that team, teamwork piece of it. Like, I love the community of, of the people who work together. And everybody was, it didn't matter. It didn't matter what neighborhood you grew up in. It didn't matter a lot of things, they, they went away because we were all working really hard to shape somebody's life. And um, I feel so grateful when I get to be part of that team, too. And so um, that one instance, just a couple weeks ago, I just felt really, like, overcome with emotions of gratitude for these people that I get to work with every day. So. Yeah, I think um, probably all of us can relate to that. And it is, it's great to be part of that team. Um, so the county general... ER team. They work together really well. Um, they also have some issues. <laughs> um, like I said, Doug Ross, the first time we meet him, shows up to work drunk, or well, shows up a few hours before his shift drunk, um, very troubled. Also, I put in my notes, Clooney's haircut is awful, but he's still so pretty. <laughs> I just, I love 90s George Clooney. Yeah. Um, no gray hair. No gray hair, yeah, that's right. He's so young. They all are. But, um, so, and like I said, Peter Benton, it just sort of rubs most people the wrong way. I also put in my notes that he smiles more in this pilot episode than I think he does for, like, the next two seasons. He just, (laughs) the way that I remember him watching the show is just, man, that guy just never is happy, you know? He's just, he always just seems so, so troubled or so angry. Um, but he has a lot going on, too. And, um, he, he knows that he's really good at his job, and I think, he feels the need to prove that constantly. And, and part of that is, I think, because he is an African-American doctor. I'm, I'm watching the show um, 
ahead of where we are right now. So I'm already into season three and just sort of a conversation he has with one of the residents. And he talks about how he has to work so much harder than the white doctors do to prove himself. Um, and I think not that I can relate on a racial level, obviously, but as a woman, um, there's not a lot of women hospital chaplains. And so sometimes I, I feel like I'm fighting a similar battle. Um, there's only two female sta female chaplains on our staff, and a lot of times patients will be expecting a man when I walk into the room and introduce myself as a chaplain. Um, so yeah, that sort of that sort of stuff comes up sometimes. I wanted to ask you all, veterans that have watched ER, where is the chaplain? Is there a chaplain that shows up later? Because there should have been a chaplain in this episode. Janie. <laughs> Um, that's like the constant theme of my, like my arch nemesis is the fact that they don't have enough chaplains in TV medical dramas, uh -huh. but there is an episode in the first season where, um, there's a nun is, and uh, the, a nun shows up and I don't know, they don't call her the chaplain, but she very well may be. And then I think way at the end, there's a like five episode arc. Am I right? Yes. Like, with a female chaplain. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, but that's like in one of the like thir uh, season 13 or something yeah like that's that. like john stamos era way we're way far away from that um right. but actually where i am in season three i think it was season three it may have been season two there's a catholic priest um chaplain who shows up um briefly but we'll talk about that when we get there but most of the time there's no chaplain there's no mention of a chaplain and um, in, in all the hospitals that I've worked in, the chaplain has been part of the trauma team that we get the trauma pages, just like all the doctors and respiratory therapists and nurses do. And we're there when that trauma patient rolls in the door. Um, and you know, we never know what it's going to be or how we're going to be needed. And sometimes maybe we're not needed a whole lot other than to be that non-anxious presence and be there for the staff. Um, but sometimes we're there for the patient and the patient's family that comes in or who are freaking out as well. One of the like most blatant times in this episode when I was like, where's the chaplain? Was when the, um, the multiple traumas come in at once from the building collapse and one man dies. Um, Dr. Green goes out to the crowded waiting room and, and meets his son, who is demanding to know how his father's doing. And Dr. Green tells him in the midst of all these people that his father has died. Um, it was just, oh, it just crawled all over me. Does any, did anybody else have any feelings about that scene? Not only are there privacy issues, <laughs> but just the insensitivity of not having him in a separate place to be able to properly show his emotions, ask any questions, um, and process is glaring that's that he pushes him and holds him there before he breaks down and starts to cry yeah Janie um I just google it but the there was no HIPAA when this episode was made wow um, so you mentioned privacy issues so they didn't have a federal um guideline to follow so I'm assuming it was kind of a every hospital for itself on as far as its standards and kind of maybe a generally like a general ethic of how we handle privacy, but it wasn't enforced the way it is now. So I wonder um, if it was different, but I thought, I thought that I, I had remembered that if it didn't exist when we are started. So um, that's really changed things a lot, I think for, for all of us who work in hospitals. Yeah, it's just hard to imagine life without HIPAA in a hospital now. Um, so there's so much, we have to be so careful about protecting the privacy of the patients. Um, and at least in the hospitals that I've worked in, there are consult rooms where doctors can go with family members privately outside of the main waiting area to, um, to give them updates and especially to tell them bad news. Um, because you do never know how people are going to react in this this son, adult son of the man who died, responds with anger, which we see so often, I think, um, with with people, with family members who are experiencing the shock of a sudden death, that so often 
um, not to be stereotypical, but especially with men, I see it that their their first response is just anger and lashing out. And I've had to duck fists a few times and been in rooms with, you know, furniture that's gotten broken by angry family members um, because they just don't know how to react. It's just it's such a horrible and shocking thing. It should be noted that as chaplains, we do acknowledge that the emotional care um, of patients is offered by pretty much everyone who comes in contact with them in different ways, whether they, that the staff may realize it or not. Um, especially nurses, often because of their interactions with patients um, and constant care, do offer different types of emotional support, mm -hmm. sometimes spiritual as well. And that is part of why um, chaplains supporting the staff is so important is because they get depleted from that. They have questions. They need to process as well. And that's one of the things that I think in this episode is really emphasized is the pace of things is so fast mm -hmm. and everything is so intense that in the moments that they do get downtime, what are they doing? What are they thinking? Those would be appropriate times for a chaplain to come in and help them to process the things that have happened, um, as well as additionally pr providing spiritual care to the patients. Um, there were several instances, specifically um, with a man who was, had the unofficial cancer diagnosis. Mm -hmm. The doctor spent a lot of time in the room with this man as he processed his emotions, when really that was perhaps not the best use of her time, even though it was very important, a chaplain would have been a much more appropriate person to talk to him about. He's he's rewriting his whole life narrative at that moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she has other people that she needs to deal with. So that's what a chaplain can offer to both the staff and the patient, as well as, as Janie said, the staff care, just constantly checking in with them, seeing how they're doing. Um, and sometimes that's in the form of humor. Um, ER, ER workers are, are known for their strange and wonderful sense of humor that they have to have in order to survive the things that they see and to deal with. Yeah. So chaplains have to adapt to that as well. I saw a little bit of that, I think. Um, you know, I've certainly seen that in uh, the real ER, but I saw it. Um, too with the staff and in, in the um, in the show the ER in that they kept talking about the weather you know like who who yeah. when how long has it been raining or yeah. who said it was snowing you know all this kind of stuff and there's just like some I'm sure that there's you know some kind of uh, way of just bringing them back to reality maybe or but it's some way that they can relate and talk about something so simple but um, something that they're all aware of and it's just there was a little bit of humor in that, like talking about the weather and how it's changed, even in this 24-hour period. I, I think it's interesting how they chose the St. Patrick's Day to start it. But, you know, they, they mentioned a couple of times in the episode that it was St. Patrick's Day. And um, I wondered a few times while I was watching it, why did they choose that? I mean, it's Chicago, and I know that's kind of a big day oh, yeah. in Chicago. Um, I also thinking about Deborah's weather comments. I mean, in Chicago, March seventeenth could be cold and snowing, or it could be warm and you know play outside weather. And so um, I don't know. That's kind of a maybe that's a little bit of a metaphor for for what the ER is like. <laughs> could be snowing, could be warm and sunny. Yeah, and just as you mentioned, Sarah Jane, just the pace of everything. I mean, this episode covers a period of twenty four hours. Um, and, and we see Mark Green several times try to sneak off into one of the rooms, empty rooms, and try to get some sleep, which uh, that's another thing that hit me. Like, don't they have on-call rooms? I mean, our hospital, we have on-call <laughs> rooms for the doctors, but apparently County General can't afford them. Um, but he, he mentions that he's on a 36-hour shift, that the residents work 36-hour shifts, which... That's another thing that I'm wondering if that has changed now. I know that in the past few years there's been talk about the need for doctors to get more rest, and so they have tried to cut back on those insanely long shifts um, for med students and residents. 
Um, but that was something that, that I, I noticed. And then, um, he mentions their salary too, and I didn't write it down, so I can't remember how much it was, but it was just insanely low. <laughs> 22 or 23,000. Yeah. Even in 1994, that wasn't enough. <laughs> well, I think they're showing that it, it may be a glorified profession. And again, there is the contrast with Dr. Harris when Dr. Green goes to visit this, oh, yeah. this posh, upscale place where they're offering him vacations and travel to other countries for, you know, doctor's retreats. Mm -hmm. And yet he says that he doesn't, that to him is not the kind of medicine that he wants to practice. I yeah. think that says something about his character, as we had talked about before. Yeah, it just wouldn't have been as satisfying for him. He's um, he's great in the ER, and I think he kind of thrives on the, the chaos as well because he knows what to do, um, and he enjoys helping the rest of the team be their best, too. Janie. Um, I wonder, I think it says something about his character. I also think it says something about his personality, and, that, um, and I think that the... There's something, he's getting something from, you know, I mean, some of it's obvious, like, but he, he gains, he gets something, he benefits from his role as an ER physician too, that he, I think there's something there that he doesn't want to give up. Um, and, and so I, I don't, I don't know if it's totally, um, some of it's just his personality is a match there, but I wonder too, if, if there's. I think in healthcare this can get confusing, but it's it, it is altruistic. But also, there's sometimes things can be both. Like they can be really good things to do that help people, but we also get the benefit of feeling good about that thing that we do, or or, or it fills some kind of need we have to help other people. And um, I think that that was probably very true for him. Um, that that somehow. in the ER, um, is, is Dr. Morgenstern says to Dr. Green when um, Carol comes in for her with her overdose that he is um, the head of this team and that he said felt like that was putting a lot snap at people um, initially. Um, but he did, he did definitely show some compassion, especially to Dr. Ross um, and to some other characters. Again, a chaplain would have been very helpful for that situation yeah. to go between team members and offer support. Yeah. Yeah, Janie. Can I jump in? Mm -hmm. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Um, the, I noticed when he snapped, when Dr. Green snapped at people, it felt really empty. Mm -hmm. See, family, his friends with. Um, when they interact, they he is gentle and and kind and and slow to slow to anger, to borrow biblical language. And um, I, I think, I wonder if the snapping is a learned behavior and that there's some kind of message that this is what good doctors do. And, and they, they run around and they're so busy that they have to snap at people, you know. And I'm, mm. I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like I see that everywhere. That's kind of a, a healthcare culture thing that, um, that we have to always look and be really busy yeah, to be snappy and snippy and short, um, not us specifically probably, but I just experienced a lot of people being that way, and I don't think that's who they really are. This message that, that that's what that's what a good doctor or that's what a good nurse or that's they're so busy that they snap at people. So, what do you guys think? <laughs> I really think. was having to be like that to kind of pull them back um, from their own emotions because I think, you know, this is a nurse that they all know and depend on day after day, and here she is now a patient. And so I think that 
kinds of emotions, almost like he was the one that was having to kind of way of acting in the in the ER. That in this case, it had um, you know even more of an intention. To emotions and focus on their tasks because they don't have a chaplain and this there is no time um, in those moments to really feel and um, you know I, I think that that's, that's a, a really awkward thing uh, does anybody else have experience with one of your staff members suddenly becoming a patient Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we can all remember those those moments when someone that we know as a very capable professional suddenly is weak and vulnerable, oftentimes exposed as a patient, and how awkward that can be for all of the staff members providing care um, as clinicians and not just as friends. So what would be some... But, uh, and, and you, Janie, you mentioned that he does, he does have a very gentle demeanor. But what I find interesting is when he is telling that adult son that his father died in the accident and the son collapses into him, he hesitates to touch him. Here's a man who, who's very big into touch and, and doesn't seem to have a problem with getting you know, into other people's personal space, you know, doesn't know what's appropriate with this, you know, other person. Especially a person in grief and crisis. Mm-hmm. You know. People off. It looks like it threw him off in that episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, the I think the big event... Um, at least in the, especially in the second half of the premiere, is Carol Hathaway coming in as a patient. Um, She's the charge nurse in the ER. Everybody knows her, has depended on her. And she comes in um, as an attempted suicide, which we all know there's really complicated grief um, feelings around suicide. And everybody in the ER is asking themselves, you know, if they missed something, you know, she seemed fine today. And just Doug Ross, especially because they had dated in the past is sort of blaming himself and wondering if he did something to cause her to do this. Um, so I was just going to ask what, what would be some interventions that maybe we could do as chaplains with this staff in a situation like this? Do you mean as the event is unfolding or maybe after things settle down? Um, I think both. I mean, we're, you know, we're there hopefully for the moment itself and for the aftermath. Well, for the the initial crisis when patient comes in, most of the time that is when it is most important for us to be a non-anxious presence, to be there, to be seen that um, we are um, a, a steady presence among all that chaos. And we also use that time to assess um, perhaps the, the different levels of needs, the fact that you know, Dr. Ross looks like he's about to cry. He mm-hmm. might be at the top of the list. Um, there might be other people that we would check in on later. Kind of keep a mental log of, of people to check in on and stand by as, as they do the medical intervention that is necessary. And then afterwards, there may be people who actively seek the chaplain out who uh, need to unload, but... Also, we would be the ones to go around and, and check in on them and see if, 
if anyone needs to talk and for us to listen. There's really no answers at that point that can be given. It's mainly just listening to the type of grief and uncertainty that they're going through so that they can finish their shift and still be effective in their jobs. Right, and where it's a, when it's a situation where there are so many people, like the whole staff of the ER affected, um, it, on in the hospital I'm in now, we have done um, sort of debriefing with the whole staff as a group, especially at shift change when you have both the net, night, sh- night shift and day shift people there because everybody's going to know this, this person. Um, and it's it can be really helpful for everybody to be in the same room for even for 15 or 20 minutes and just, you know, voice what they're feeling and um, for the chaplain to be there to listen and also for the, the other staff members to hear that maybe, you know, the person across the room has similar feelings to them and they're not wrong to feel that way or they're not, you know, this is not abnormal to, to be feeling this way. Um, I find, you know, I love the idea of debriefings, but they just never work out in our setting. Um, and I'm, I think, I think sometimes people do avoid it because they're avoiding their feelings. Um, but lately I've just kind of, I don't know. So I, I guess I'm viewing it through that lens of being a little bit skeptical about it because it never works out for us. But, um, I think about just being, on a daily basis, I try to be present and available. I try to spend time, um, especially in the ER, just being there because I know that that there's going to be a crisis. Something's going to happen, and and I don't want it to be weird that I'm there. I don't want mm-hmm. it to be. I don't want people to see me and think, "Oh, well, it's a crisis because Jane's here." And right. um, so so I think that building those relationships from the get-go, from the beginning is really important so that mm-hmm. it's not, you're not a stranger, you're not an outsider in the unit when something, if it's this kind of crisis or any kind of crisis, you're not someone who came in to take care of them, which I think could feel maybe patronizing. Mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of verbally processing this, but um, I I think that they, they, they have to buy in and they have to, to see that you are part of this and you experience this person and, and, and interacted with them as well. That, that helps, of course, um, in, in this situation, I would imagine. But um, even with this, you know, with a patient crisis, they, the fact that you were there yesterday joking around with them is important today when the crisis happens. So that's, that's one of my strategies. Though I don't think about it that way. That's a strategy. No, but I think you have to be intentional about building that trust. Um, Just putting in the time does make a big difference in in the staff feeling like you are part of the team and you're not just this person who shows up at a crisis. Um, Are there any other patients in the episode that y'all wanted to talk about? Um that needed a chaplain? Um, I thought several times that when the pediatric patients were being seen that it would have been helpful for a chaplain to be with the parents, especially when Mm -hmm. they asked the one mother very, well, they really aren't very nice about it to step out of the room even if she is being overbearing, um, for a chaplain to be on the other side of that window holding her hand, either literally or figuratively, would really help out because her, her you know, concern is genuine. Yes, they need to get the kids. And um, even the mother who has abused the baby, you know, a chaplain. Mm-hmm. We're not saying we always like having to go into those situations or even like the people that were serving but they they still need that yeah that I think that was one of the most difficult things I did during CPE was there was a child abuse situation and I was called in to to be with 
one of the parents and um, the one who was suspected of the abuse. And it was really, really tough to be pastoral in that situation, but there was, there was a need there, you know? Um, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's hard sometimes, but everybody has needs and um, we're all children of God, no matter what we've done or said, um, we all need we all need care, and God's there, present with all of them, um, all the people, no matter what. So that's I feel like that's sort of our job as chaplains too. Doctor Susan Lewis says in the the episode when she's dealing with one of her patients that one thing that work in the working in the ER has taught her is that nothing is certain. Mm-hmm. And even though she found great truth in that phrase, I wondered how could a chaplain take that and reframe it. Because for us, our, our faith and our God are certain. That doesn't mean that many other things are. But sometimes just our presence in representing that hope can make a huge difference and could have made a huge difference for both the doctor and the patient. So I really do think that in this series, we could um, come back to some ways that chaplains could reframe um, some of the things that the staff thinks or believes. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Sarah Jane. Jane, you one of you? the things that oh, sorry, I Deborah. was thinking about. One of the things I was thinking about um, just before um, Sarah Jane spoke, but then it kind of reiterated it when I heard Sarah Jane's thought, and that is um, about the diversity that we serve, the diversity of people, I mean, that we serve. Um, You know, you were talking about having to provide care to a possible child abuser and how difficult that can be. And I have thought many times about um, patients that I've had in the past, especially in hospice care. Um, When I was serving in Texas, oftentimes uh, people would be released from their um, life sentence in a prison in order to receive care at home, usually, you know, under um, home arrest and and with observation. And I um, met a lot of people with stories that could kind of make me cringe deep inside um, on, on the ways that, you know, they had chosen to live their lives often, um, at the expense of others and in abusing others and in some ways, in some cases, even murdering others and Mm. taking life. And, um, I think that when I was a hospice chaplain, I saw so many different people because one thing was certain Sarah Jane, and that is that we're all going to die. And, um, death does not discriminate. So I had patients, from all walks of life, and um, I really loved that. I loved serving so many different people, and often those who were not very much like me. They didn't look like me. They didn't have stories like mine, and I learned so much from meeting other people and hearing stories that were beyond even my imagination. I think that the ER offers that unique perspective as well, we see that a little bit even in this episode when you have um, so many different people coming in, those who may not have received help, any kind of health care for many years. And, um, you know, even the physicians saying, you know, I'm fairly certain this is true, so you can go on. You don't have to keep paying for tests and that sort of thing. And, you know, or, or then you've got this very wealthy woman who shows up who just needs attention and just Mm -hmm. needs to be in the presence of another. And she's wearing her fur coat and she's clearly, um, you know, very affluent. And she chooses to pay the fees so that she can have her hangnail cut off just because she needed that personal touch. And so you see so many different people in the ER as well. And I truly embraced that as a chaplain in an acute care setting in the ER and also as a hospice chaplain 
because there are certain things that unite all of us, and that is our need for care in these situations. And like I said before, you know, we're um, we're all facing death at some point in this life, and um, that, that does make us very similar in those moments. And I appreciate what the ER offers in that way. Yeah, very well said. Um, I, I think. I think that's my favorite thing about hospital ministry in general. It's mm-hmm. just the people that we get to see who um, we, we, we wouldn't see in a church. You know, churches are often filled with people who are like that. And hospitals are so great because everybody gets sick. And um, we, there's all kinds of access to, to people and, and, and potential relationships with people that, that we might not have. Otherwise, so that's my favorite thing about hospitals and working, being a hospital minister for sure. Okay, well, um, we are coming close to the end of our time, so I want to just wrap things up um, by asking: Does anybody have a favorite line or favorite moment from the episode? Anyone? I don't know, there was a lot there, but I'll share mine. So, um, Carter gets, he's, he's been working a long day. It's his first day in the ER. And then this patient comes in with a stab wound to the belly and Carter kind of gets sort of nauseous and almost passes out. And, um, he goes outside to the ambulance bay cause he's really embarrassed and feels like he totally screwed up and, Mark Green comes out and talks to him as the good teacher and mentor that he is and tells him, if you're going to keep your feelings, you're going to get sick from time to time. And um, and I can relate to that as a chaplain because even if it's not getting physically sick, just it's really hard. Like your feelings do come into it so often. And it's it's been a huge learning process for me over the past decade to figure out how to to not become numb to everything, but not fall into the pit of, you know, getting pulled down with by every situation that comes into the hospital and getting too personally sucked into everything. So I can relate to Carter and trying to find that balance. And so that just really stuck with me. Also, when Benton told Carter that when, when you have a moment, you eat, even if you don't feel like eating right then, because you don't know when you're going to have time for your next meal. And, um, I feel that way when I'm covering the pager sometimes too. And I can remember one of my CPE supervisors telling me that exact thing that he was, I said something about not having had dinner and he's like, why didn't you have dinner? And I was like, people were dying. And he's like, it's a hospital. People are always dying. You still have to eat. Um, I, um, I really liked the, Dr. Benton's karate chop, you know, his yeah. karate celebration that has been in the opening credits, you know, for years and years. I just, I remember when that happened, like when the, when the episode or the first time I saw that episode and I've always just thought that's one of my favorite memories from the whole, whole show. He took this huge giant risk and, um, and it paid off and just how satisfying that was. So, I love that part. That was mine too, Janie, because <laughs> I, I could um, relate to that. I think like in a lot of ways you just go into the room in turnout and you just show up and you do the best you can with the skills that you have. And thank God we get the Holy Spirit to work with us too and acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is guiding us. But I feel like that sometimes when I'm walking and I'm when it's just been so intense and it's a relief and it's also just um there's just joy sometimes there to know like I wasn't all alone in that moment like the Holy Spirit really showed up and and I did something right even though I didn't really know what I was going to do or what I was going to say or how I was going to (laughs) be I was still I was okay in that moment you know Mm. I didn't kill him (laughs) that's kind of how I feel so there's yeah. there's time for celebration. Yeah, Sarah Jane. My favorite, my favorite part, perhaps a little bit of a darker part of the show was <laughs> Dr. Lewis in in the room with the rain pouring down the windows, 
talking to the man as, as he realizes that he's going to die. Mm. And he's talking about his priorities. And he's realizing what this honesty that she's given him means in the honesty in his life. And I just... He's so poignant. You know, that's another, that's so much like Dr. Benton's moment. She took a risk. She took a big risk um, with his patient in being honest with him. Um, and it paid off. And he was, and you know, he, he, he found comfort and he thanked her for that. And it, so it, it sounds kind of like a, a similar thing. Yeah, um, so a couple of final thoughts. Um, Carrie Nettles, our other co-host who's not here, one of the things that she brought up was they just don't wash their hands enough. And so I was <laughs> like, it was 1994. Hand sanitizer was barely a thing. Like Purell was patented in 1988, and it took a few years for that to become a big thing in hospitals. And it's not like there was a sink outside every room. So, yeah, especially the part where Carter was delivering the baby. I was like, he's got his hands all up in her vagina, and he did not wash his hands. <laughs> like, he just wasn't ready for it. Um, what about Dr. Ross getting, getting the woman throws blood up all over his tie and his, oh, yeah. and his dress shirt? And he's just going on about his business until there's a lull. Uh-huh. Whereas, you know, bodily fluid containment is now a very, very important part of ER life. Oh, yeah. Infection control would have been all over those people. Because <laughs> um, I think in pretty much any hospital now, there's hand sanitizer outside every door. You have to sanitize your hands before you go in the room and after you come out of the room without exception. And that's the bare minimum. You know, that's with people who don't have horribly contagious things that we know about that we need to glove up and everything. Um so, yeah, anybody else have any final yeah, the thoughts? The only mention was when um, one of the guys was just joking around and said, don't shake his hand, he's afraid of germs, to yeah. one of the clerks in, in the nurse's station. <laughs> and rightly <laughs> so. Right? You work in a hospital, you should be afraid of germs. I think one of the things that, that we should also mention here towards the that is also help to realize that this ER, this dirty, gross place where, you know, the, the floors are disgusting. It's not pretty. There's nothing pretty about it, that this is a sacred space. Mm -hmm. Chaplains help to promote the idea that birth, death, life, emotions are all sacred. And everyone's story that comes in and goes out of that ER is sacred. And helping to promote that, we can, you know, preserve the, the dignity of everyone's story, since I do love storytelling. Absolutely. And if I can put in a shameless plug for my book, Being Called Chaplain, um, which is you can get the ebook on Amazon. One of my favorite scenes in the book is when um, a patient was bleeding out in the ER and the floor is just covered in blood and there's all these 20 staff members around trying to save this guy's life. And I just felt the presence of God I said as strongly as I had in any beautiful cathedral, just in the mess of that ER, um, it was just so palpable that God was there with us, with all the staff, with that guy laying there dying. And um, yeah, it was holy. And that's one of the things I love about hospital work. Yeah, Jamie. And and how how much is that in line with Jesus? And like um, how... Jesus put his, you know, his mixed his spit with some dirt mm. and healed a man and 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 washed those disciples' dirty feet, and um, you know, he 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 was in those. Those were the sacred places, and I think that that Jesus believed those were the sacred places, and so I imagine. Um, the ER of, of his local hospital would be Jesus, one of his favorite hangouts these days, if he was walking around among us physically now. So, on with the Gospels, you know, that God is in the hard stuff, and God is in the dirt, and um, and that that is holy and sacred. And thanks for that, Sarah Jane. That's a, that's a great thought. Yeah. Um, well, thank you all so much for being here. Um, listeners, thank you for tuning in, and Sarah Jane, Deb, and Janie, I look forward to embarking on this adventure with you. Um, 
We'll be back next week to cover episodes two and three of the first season of ER, and we hope you'll be back with us then. Bye. ER Chaplains Watching ER is produced at Top 5 Studios by my talented husband, Will Lawton. Music for the show is provided by our band, Rogue 2. You can hear more of our great original songs at Rogue 2, that's T-W-O dot rocks. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a good review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners can find us. Let us know what you think of the show on Twitter at chaplains underscore ER or comment on our Facebook page at Chaplains Watching ER. You can find out more about the hosts and find show notes for every episode on our website, chaplainswatching.net. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Stacy N. Sargent. That's S-E-R-G-E-N-T. I blog about hospital chaplaincy, step parenting, and other stuff at stacynsargent.com, where you can also find links to get my book, Being Called Chaplain, How I Lost My Name and Eventually Found My Faith. Join us right here next week as we watch episodes two and three of ER.